Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about therapy, my own personal journey as a client, as a therapist, and a little bit of the stigma and reservations people have about engaging in the therapeutic process. So let's jump in. I'll start by sharing a little bit about my own personal journey into therapy as a client. When I first engaged in therapy, it definitely, I wouldn't say, was something I sought out and thought that I would ever participate in. You know, growing up, I can't remember having a single conversation with anyone about therapy. I can't recall a single person I knew who participated in therapy And I think anything I would know about therapy, I knew from maybe different things that I saw on TV. One thing that sticks out to me is the movie Parenthood with Steve Martin. Um, And I don't remember a whole lot about the movie, but I do remember that one of the sons, young boy, probably around seven or eight, was going through some things, I guess, but they were in an arcade and someone says something. He's like, then why do I have to see a shrink? And I remember thinking, what is a shrink? What does that mean? Uh, and I, I, I guess at some point I realized that it was talking about therapy. I would, I worked for a community mental health organization, uh, for many years and there was a therapeutic component to that job. I wasn't the therapist, but, uh, the young people that I worked with had therapy as part of their treatment. So I think I began to learn more about what therapy was by seeing that, But it was never something that I thought I would participate in. But uh, at the end of my first marriage, as it began to dissolve and I had left the relationship, I found myself in this very uh, interesting, for lack of a better word, place of not knowing what was coming next. I didn't leave the relationship initially with the intent of divorce. I left the relationship with the intent that something had to change and really with hopes of reconciliation. What I didn't realize is everything that was happening in my personal life was starting to bleed over into my professional life. So you have to understand that at this time, only maybe three or four people knew what was happening with me in my life, in my personal life with my relationship. And at the day or time that I decided to leave, when I told the closest people to me that I had left, they were floored, shocked, just could not believe it. So I did not spend time throughout my life really at all, but especially kind of during this period of time sharing what was going on with me. I had some pretty solid fundamental beliefs that one, I made the bed, so I had to lay in it. Two, it was not anyone else's responsibility to, you know, take care of me, help me out. You know, I didn't need to be telling everybody my problems and we could dive there. I mean, part of it was there was an image I had, you know, I I had an image. It was a good image. For most people, and I know that fueling part of that was not wanting that image to change, but also I had never really had the experience of being able to trust people emotionally 
with things that I was experiencing. So carrying emotional burden and weight had been what I had done since I was a child. And so it was not going to be any different um, now. But what happened was my interactions with the kids that I was working with started to be impacted by what was happening in my personal life. And I definitely didn't see it uh, for myself, but I became more irritable, more combative, very much less patient. And what actually happened was I had kind of gotten into an altercation, not physical or anything like that, but definitely got into this interaction with the, uh, one of the young people that I worked with that was very much out of character for me. And my supervisor at the time, she was an amazing supervisor. She pulled me into her office and what she did was she showed me the video of my interaction with this child. And the videos were uh, visual, but there was no audio. So you couldn't hear what was being said. You could only see the interaction as it happened. And I sat in her office and I, I'm watching this tape and I look unrecognizable to myself. The way the person I see on that video is not who I feel that I, who I felt I was. And it was not a disciplinary visit. She didn't call me in to show me the video to say, what's wrong with you? Get it together. She didn't write me up. She didn't reprimand me. She showed me the video and she wanted to know how she could help. She was not aware of all the things that were going on in my life. And I told her the things that were happening. And she offered and recommended to me do you think you need to see someone? And we had an assist, uh, employee assistance program. She kind of introduced that to me. And she also asked the question, do you need to be around kids right now? You know, do we need to figure something out? And I honestly think that it was her compassion and her, um, her care for me that drove me to the outcome that it did. And I'm grateful because had she been punitive and tried to like, reprimand me, then I know I would have probably immediately jumped to resentment, anger, and defensiveness. She don't know everything I got going on in my life. The fact that I'm showing up every day, i that's where I would have gone. I'm pretty positive about it. But because she approached me with love and with compassion, I had to take a few steps back and say, all right, you know, maybe I do need to see someone. Now, to also be clear, that did not make this decision easy. I experienced so many doubts about going to see a counselor, therapist, whatever you call them, because here are a few things. One, I'm a person of faith and I grew up with pretty much the only options of healing was you take it to Jesus. And after you take it to him, you can take it to one of his representatives, you know, go to somebody in the church, have them pray for you and everything's going to be okay. So when I started thinking about going into therapy, I started to feel like I didn't have enough faith. I started to feel like it was wrong. Would God be mad at me? Like, did I not trust him? And I had all of these different thoughts. Then there was kind of this idea of, I don't know what kind of person I thought went to therapy, but I was for sure that people like me didn't go to therapy. And I don't even know what that means. I have no idea what I thought people like me meant, but it was a very tough decision. Now at that time, one way to potentially reconcile this was I was determined to have a Christian counselor. 
I thought, all right, well, if I'm going to go, I'm going to very specifically seek out a Christian counselor to, uh, to help me because I felt like, you know, maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe he wouldn't be as mad. I, I didn't know, but I remember calling the EAP and saying that I wanted to set up sessions and I found myself getting an appointment with a woman and, um, I went and filled out the paperwork and I had a few sessions and she explained to me on the first session that how it worked is that I would have three sessions with her. And if by the end of the third session, it was determined that whatever I was going through could be worked through in 10 sessions total, then I would be able to stay with her. But if at the end of that third session, if I was going to need to see someone for a longer period of time, she would have to refer me out um, and I would have to see someone else. And so I met with her a couple of times and I can take a couple of things away from my three meetings with her. One is she was the, she went through and she was kind of Likert scale, the zero to 10 kind of thing. And she was asking me on a scale of zero to 10, how would you rate your relationship with your mother? How would you rate your relationship with this person and this person? And then she asked me on a scale of zero to 10, how would you rate your relationship with yourself? What? I don't think I had ever, I know I had never been asked the question, but I don't think I had ever really given much consideration to having a relationship with myself. So that was one thing that I took away. The next was, this was probably maybe our second session and uh, (laughs) I'm sitting there and I had mastered the one tear cry. And if I allow myself, I can go back into that mode, you know, when you're, you're emotional and you might have the, the sniffles going on, but you, if anything falls from your eyes, tears may well up in your eyes, but if anything falls, it's just one tear. And I know how to catch it at the corner of my eye, right near the nose with not my finger, but with the, what's it called? My knuckle. And I, I dab it and you keep going. And I, I describe it that way. Cause I know there are so many people who have mastered the one tear cry, right? The one tear cry that I'm not going to be weak. I'm not going to let nobody see me cry. And that's how I felt prior to, you know, the therapeutic experience. I felt like crying was a weakness and I did cry, but no one saw me cry. And on the very rare occasions that someone did, it was almost like I made them pinky promise that they would not tell anybody they had seen me cry. And it wasn't, it was part apology. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry for crying, but if you tell anybody, this is what I would say to people. If you tell anybody that you've seen me cry, dot, 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 I didn't even have to fill in the blank and they would always assure me, you know, I'm not going to say anything. So this therapist at the time, actually, um, you know, she's still practicing in the city. She said to me, yeah, you really know how to turn that off, don't you? And I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, I do. And she said, yeah, well, one day you're going to cry. And you're not going to be able to turn it off. And I was just like, mm-hmm, giving her to like, yeah, right, lady. Like, you don't know how good I am at this. Like, whatever. And I, I was very dismissive of it. Um, I It was evident to me by the third session and her that, you know, the things I was coming with were going to be deeper than 10 sessions. Because when you first go to therapy, most often people ask you what's your presenting concern. They want to know what are you coming with and why are you 
seeking therapy. And at the time I said, you know, separation and potential divorce from my husband. Well, I got in there and I realized that it had absolutely nothing to do with that and that I had to go way back, um, way back before I even came to the point where I was ready to um, talk about or even do anything with the relationship that I was still in the midst of because there was a lot of things that I had gone through myself. And so I share that because I talk about therapy. I am a believer in therapy as a client and as a practitioner. And the way I talk about it, I think people sometimes think I always was this way and I started this way. So I share that I had reservations that it was not an easy decision. And it was actually kind of someone else's urging as they saw how my behaviors were changing that actually got me to go into the therapeutic process. And so I think that's important as you're listening to me talk about all these things. I always want to be transparent about where I've been and where I've come from. But now let's just think and talk about all of the stigma that surrounds therapy. So these are literal things that people have said to me. People who are friends of mine too, who know I'm a therapist. You know, some people say, well, I don't need to go to therapy. I ain't crazy. You know, I don't need a straight jacket. So first of all, um, that that's not a thing in therapy. Just so you know, you're not going to find a therapist that's licensed in any state that's going to put you in a straight jacket inside of their office or this notion that I'm not crazy. So my first thing to that is, yeah, you are. And that's OK. We all are our own brand of crazy. And it doesn't have to mean that there's something wrong with that. But we have this idea that only people who are mentally unstable need therapy. Well, how are we defining mentally unstable? There are a lot of things that happen in our regular lives, our relationships, our ability to take care of ourselves, our ability to value ourselves, our ability to um, moderate ourselves that, that reeks of instability. But oftentimes we have this idea that people like me don't go to therapy. Now that's across the board in general. Now, if I want to further break down some of the demographics where I see this happening a lot, circles I intersect with based on my identities, it's black people. I don't need therapy. I don't need to talk to nobody. And I, I don't agree Because oftentimes the people who are telling me they don't need therapy and they don't need to talk to someone are talking to people, just not people that can help them. You cousin, you calling your cousin, you know, (laughs) whoever, you know, John, and you talking to, you know, your best friend Renee, and you're doing all of these different things in hopes that this relationship can help you get some relief from your symptoms But John and Renee are going through their own things and they are not equipped to help you not just heal, but even before that, be objective in helping you understand what you're going through. So when people say, I don't need therapy, I don't think people need therapy, therapy isn't for everyone. And here again, I'm not even saying it's for everyone. It's just in those instances, there are a lot of people who are using the tenets of therapy. They are seeking safety. They're seeking safety in relationship. They're trying to co-regulate with someone. They're trying to do all of these things, but it's something about going to a person that has been trained to help them that comes along with this stigma. Further, people in the Christian church community, it's therapy is highly stigmatized. And 
So then what they do is they actually find themselves, a lot of people, you know, generalization, but a lot of people find themselves putting undue pressure and undue responsibility on pastors and ministers and deacons and people inside the church because they're trying to get from them what they need to be getting from the people who are trained and skilled to help them work through these things. So I do a fair amount of work with faith-based organizations. And I remember um, having uh, doing a workshop at a church. And during this workshop, there was a woman um, who was a member of the church. And I heard her talking with her pastor. I was not yet a part of the conversation. And she said, all I heard was, but you expect somebody to go to a stranger and talk to them. So the pastor brings me over and he says, hey, what would you say to a person who says, you know, counseling or therapy is not for everyone? So I said, first, I would ask you, well, how do you define therapy? So we went through and she pretty much said, you know, sitting down, talking to somebody about your problems. And I asked, so is is that something you don't think that many people need? And it's like, well, no, but this and, you know, the whole thing. And I was able to ask her, do you call your pastor when you have a problem? Well, yeah, he's my pastor. Got it. When your transmission in your car goes out, do you take your car to your pastor? And she looked at me and she said, no. And I said, why not? And she said, because he's not a mechanic. And I said, yeah, he ain't a therapist either. Right? There is no point in time when someone would say, hey, I'm going to take this to this person because they can cure all and they can do all. Right. You say, no, I need a mechanic. Now, you can also let your pastor know that your car is broken down and maybe he can pray for you or with you or maybe even provide some financial assistance to get that taken care of. But at no point, unless he is also a mechanic, do you expect that he or she is a mechanic that you expect that person to take care of it? And so I want to encourage people in that regard, but I also put a lot of responsibility on the uh, pastors and the ministers and the priests themselves, because as people are coming to them, they find themselves more and more weighed down with dealing with the emotional, mental, psychological issues of their congregants and parishioners, which takes up the time with things that they otherwise should be doing, but can't find their way to be doing it. And so they continue to do that. So they are leading into this cycle of repetition where people are coming to them. And I am not saying there's not a place for it spiritually, for sure. But I think as uh, faith-based leaders start to feel uh, safe and comfortable with referring out to the clinicians they trust, then the people who they're leading will follow suit. You know, I think this is also a good time to talk about um, a particular uh, demographic of people that I have a special heart for clinically, and that is faith-based leaders, pastors, deacons, ministers, people who uh, dedicate a lot of their lives to serving through the church or you know, in whatever religion, but dedicate themselves to serving are often some of the most undertaken care of people that there are out there. And they don't have a network that they can go to to talk openly. What I have seen in my time in various circles for the record, I'm actually a licensed minister. So I have up close 
personal experience and seeing this from the inside and the outside. And that is, it can be a dog eat dog world. And you wouldn't think so, but there is so much competition and all these things happening amongst and within churches that the people who are serving don't have safe people and places to go to be vulnerable, to actually talk about what they're struggling with. So then what we see happen is on these uh, on these occasional things, we see pastors with big names involved in some scandal. And then everybody is like, oh my God, how could they? But you know what? They've been struggling for a really long time without having a place or people that they could turn to and be vulnerable because so many of the people who they are leading have an expectation of them that they are not human. They also perpetuate that by not being vulnerable and kind of being above being human. But all that to say, so much of my stigma about engaging in the therapeutic process was heavily rooted in the fact that I was a person who attended church and had grown up in the church. And um, I had to move beyond that, which it wasn't easy, but I was able to do that. Uh, Therapy has been life-changing for me as a participant. And then somewhere throughout the process, I realized that it was part of my calling to become one so that I could help people in various capacities. So I want to give an offering to those who are listening, who may be uh, struggling with the idea of therapy. And I want to offer some things you may ask yourself to see if therapy may be a good option for you. One thing that I think is important is, are you breathing? If you're breathing, I think therapy is a viable option. And I'm not being funny. I I definitely think that any person who has gone through childhood and survived childhood, therapy is for you. Because in our childhood, we develop our belief systems, our worldviews, and our behavioral patterns that we carry with us into adulthood because those are the worldviews, beliefs, and behaviors that helped us survive our families of origin. We don't realize we're still carrying that stuff with us when we're in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, our 50s. And therapy can be a place where we start to work some of that stuff out. Is this useful and beneficial for me? I think if you are in a relationship with anyone, it doesn't have to be romantic. Any kind of relationship, therapy is an option for you. People come to relationships with all of their history with them. And then those histories start to interact with one another. And we're trying to figure out why we have problems communicating, why we don't see eye to eye, why we have a difference of opinion about so many things, because we're bringing all of our history with us. And so I think therapy is a viable option for any person who is willing to take a look at their lives and say, hey, how do I be the best version of myself. Here's the thing. It doesn't mean something has to be wrong. I hope that people would take better care of themselves physically, wellness checks, going in, not because you have a cough or a cold or because you have an ache or something is bothering you, but simply because you want to check in on a regular basis. And maybe you're more holistic and you don't go to traditional doctors, whatever that means, taking care of yourself is very important. And so here are a few things that may assist a person who is saying, okay, fine, maybe I'll try it. 
I don't think that every therapist is for everyone. And I definitely think that therapists should be interviewed for lack of a better term. You should know who you're going to be investing your time and your money with. And so I highly recommend that you find a therapist who offers some kind of consultation, some way for you to interact with them before you begin the therapeutic process. That's often over the phone, um, sometimes maybe video. It may not be face-to-face, but I think some good questions that you might wanna ask someone are, one, how do you, what do you think about or how do you approach working with someone who has my particular issue? Whatever one you're facing, if you're coming to a person because you're saying, I'm feeling very sad and I think I'm depressed, you may want to ask a person, so what are your thoughts and how do you work with a person who's experiencing depressive symptoms? You want to know before getting into that relationship, how that person um, is planning to work with you. And while every person is different, knowing their worldview on how Uh, a person gets to where they are is going to be very important. I think another good question to ask is, what do you do for your own self-care and healing? I think it is imperative that a clinician, a therapist, a counselor is able to tell you how they take care of themselves and how they go about the process of their own healing. Me personally, I'm leery of a therapist who's never done therapy. If you don't trust the therapeutic process, why should I? And if you haven't been on this side of the relationship, the client side, how can you truly have empathy and work with someone when you've only been sitting in the position of a therapist? I think that's important. Another uh, question that I highly recommend, especially for people of color, is to ask the clinician, what are their thoughts and position on race and racial trauma, you know, in the mental health process. So what I know is that so many therapists, I'm sorry, so many people seeking therapy who are African-American, Latinx, um, who are non-white have a hesitancy to see a white clinician. And so Part of it, I think, and I have been told is one, because they don't feel they would be able to relate to the therapist and they don't feel that the therapist would be able to relate to them. They don't feel like they want to have to explain all of these kind of nuanced things that being um, a person of color in this country specifically brings about, but also just kind of not feeling safe. And so even if you're seeing or trying to seek a counselor of color, or not asking kind of what are your thoughts about that, especially if you feel that race has played a major role in your life. Ultimately, I want people to feel empowered knowing that the therapeutic process is in your control. Sometimes people think that they're going to get into that relationship and they're going to be manipulated and they're not going to be able to control what happens. And I'm here to empower people to say you're in the driver's seat. You get to decide when that relationship starts and you get to decide where it ends. Now, I know that sometimes therapy can be challenging. It opens up some stuff and it pushes you. So this doesn't mean as soon as you get uncomfortable, run for the hills because it can be a very uncomfortable process. But safety is paramount. Finding someone you feel safe with, 
I highly recommend that even if you can visit the office of a person just to see what kind of atmosphere is there, whatever you need to do to help yourself feel safe in order to engage in this relationship, the therapeutic relationship, I think that'll be important. But the fear of therapy or the stigma of it, I am working very hard to ensure that people do not feel that they don't have access to healing in the way that therapy can provide because they're unfamiliar with the process. And so I hope what you take from today is that a person who is a true advocate for therapy also started from a very hesitant place but also that I am here to support people on their healing journey. If that means that I can provide that service directly as a therapist, I'd love it. But it also means that if I can help you connect with and feel safe and comfortable finding a therapist that you can connect with, I want to help you on that journey too. And so if you have any questions, if today's segment brought anything up for you, feel free to reach out. You can reach me at uh, on my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets, and we have our Therapy Thursdays on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you would like to see those videos. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We'll be coming out every Thursday, every Tuesday, sorry, every Tuesday um, with more and more content. So until we connect again, you all be well.